We're going to continue our series, uh, We Believe, Living in Light of Our Faith. We've looked at several key doctrines, several key teachings of the Scripture. We've looked at what the Bible says about the Bible itself, that it's our authority for life. We've looked at uh, what the Bible says about God, who is God. Who is God the Son, Jesus? Who is God the Holy Spirit? We've looked at what the Bible says about creation and how we live in light of being God's creation. We've looked at the doctrine of sin. What does the Bible say regarding the fact that sin is in this world, sin is in our hearts? And we are looking now this morning at the doctrine, the teaching of salvation which we've looked at last week as well. And last week we saw the unfolding of the grand story of redemption. And we saw that there are four major scenes, four major facets of this grand story of redemption. You have creation, you have the fall, you have redemption, and you have restoration. You may say, Pastor Adam, what's the significance of these four scenes. You would be surprised how many Christians cannot give you a, this simple layout as a, as a guideline to take them through the Scriptures. When you mentally keep in mind these four segments of Scripture, it helps you as you process and read through and study the Scripture, where am I at in light of these four major segments. How do I interpret Scripture in light of these four major segments? We also saw last week that the Bible is not ultimately about you. It's not ultimately about me. The Bible is ultimately about God's glory through the great rescue plan that he has set in motion for us. And that is through the person of Jesus. So in other words, who's the hero of the Bible? Who did we talk about last week? Jesus is the hero of the Bible. It's not you. It's not me. It's not simply looking at Bible verses to try to figure out God's will for my life. It's not looking at the Bible as a source of rules and regulations. It is seeing how Jesus is the hero of the Bible. How he has perfectly fulfilled God's perfect standard. And how we now live in light of that. In fact, as we look at these four scenes of Scripture, you quickly find how all of these come together in Jesus. And we discussed last week that, that these scenes of Scripture all overlap with one another. It's not that you have creation, and then you simply move to the fall, then you simply move to redemption, and then you simply move to restoration. These overlap. For instance, have you ever considered a simple story in the Gospels? Let's take uh, one of many stories. Let's take uh, the, the story of Jesus when he calms the sea. In, in Mark chapter 4, remember the disciples, they get in the boat, they, um, they're going across to the other side, a huge storm breaks forth, the disciples are so fearful, they say, don't you care, Jesus, that we're about to die? 
And what does Jesus do? Gets up, he says, peace, be still. And everything immediately calm, is calm. That's significant because it, you know, when a storm calms, usually water, there's, there's continuing waves, is there not? I mean, you jump in the pool, you jump in one time. But you have the residual waves. But with Jesus, everything stopped at once. Now, where do these four items come together? Well, we see the issue of creation. That God created, but the New Testament tells us that Jesus was right there involved in creation with God the Father. We see the fall in several aspects. You see the fall in the fact that something has drastically gone wrong with God's creation. You see the storm, the fury of the winds, the the life-threatening nature of a broken creation. You see the fall in the response of the disciples interpreting Jesus' being asleep as not caring for his disciples. You see the fall in the fact that Jesus was sent to be, which takes us to the next aspect, our Redeemer. And when Jesus says, peace, be still, and everything is calm, that story is telling us that Jesus is the rightful rescuer because only the Son of God could ever do such a thing. That story even points to restoration that Jesus is coming to make all things right. Not only the hearts of people, but all of creation. Do you see if you really incorporate these four segments of the Bible's story, not only in the the, the whole story, but in individual stories in the Bible, the smaller stories... Do you see that that can take the way you study the Bible to the next level? Many times we say we struggle with our Bible time. Well, I'm throwing you a lifeline right now. You need to incorporate this. You're not going to be perfect and get it all right, uh, but you're going to take steps and things will start to gel together as the Holy Spirit works in your heart and mind and you start to think through these four aspects. The Scriptures are about God's glory through redemption. And what I want to do this week is begin to zoom in and continue to look at how exactly it is, specifically as we look at this third aspect, how God redeems. And in so doing, we are again going to see what's been our phrase throughout this entire series. God's people are what? Called to both know and live. God's people are, both call, are called to both know and live. Let's pray. Father, as we come together and we study your word, Lord, would you open our hearts, our minds. Father, would you give us attentiveness to your word. Lord, I know there's so many different things on so many different people's minds. There's the busyness, there's the trials, there's the hardships, there's the struggles. And God, just like those disciples, we can be so distracted that that distraction prevents us from seeing Jesus in the proper way. 
So Lord, would you calm our hearts like you calmed the seas and the storm of creation? And would you help us to be receptive to your word? In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I want to look at two things with you as we have zoomed out last week and we saw those four aspects of the Bible, of the great story of the Bible. Now we are going to zoom in and we are going to look at our specific salvation that God has given us. And we're going to do that in two ways. We're going to look this morning at the source of our redemption. And then secondly, we are going to look at our response that is required for redemption, salvation. But first we're going to look at the source of redemption. And what my prayer is today is that not only does this help us in our own understanding and lives, but this helps us to live in light of our salvation, but also to help others in maybe some misconceptions that they have regarding God or what salvation is, or what exactly is saving faith. So let's look at that this morning, the source of our redemption. This may appear to be a no-brainer to you, but first of all, we have to note that redemption is sourced in God. Redemption is sourced in God. You see, it's God the Father who sends... It is God the Son who willingly is sent, and it is God the Holy Spirit that convicts hearts that Jesus is truly who He says He is, and there's salvation in no one else other than Jesus. Now we who have been believers and and are, are firm in our faith and in the Scriptures would say that redemption being sourced in God is a no-brainer, Right? which I just mentioned. But the first idea that we have to consider in light of this point that redemption is sourced in God is that people every day, you can be an atheist and you are looking at something as a source of your salvation. Now, you may not have the same concept of salvation that that the Bible teaches, but you are looking to something for your well-being, your security, your hope, your life. Even as believers here today, you are looking for something to provide you security and hope and how easy it is to veer off and forget that Jesus, just as He is the hero of the Bible, must be the hero of our lives. We so often get that piece of bad news. We, we, we hear this issue that's going on and what happens? We forget That redemption, that hope is sourced in God and we try to be the source ourselves. How many a marriage is ruined because the spouse has replaced the Savior for their security to the spouse? How many many a parent is left shattered because their source of security and hope has been transferred 
from Jesus to the child, and that child goes off in the wrong direction. How many a child's faith is shattered and maybe never really even takes root because the source of their faith has always been, well, that's what my parents say. And when that child is old enough to make decisions on their own, they realize that's my parents' faith. That's not mine. My hope is in self. Redemption is sourced in God. But mark it down that whether we are a believer or a non-believer, the temptation is always to, to substitute Jesus for something else. What may it be in your life? But another aspect here that we have to consider is the fact that redemption is sourced in God should determine how we view God. Did you know that one of the number one areas that Christians struggle with is how they view God. Because our view of God determines our outlook on everything else. I mean, if I view God as this mean, stingy, distant person that is up there with his arms folded waiting for me to mess up, you better bet that I'm not going to have any source of hope or security in my faith. I'm not going to want to go to God's word for assurance and guidance because my view of God is going to dictate how I view all of these other things. Many people, both believers and non-believers, think of God in terms of this mean, distant being. And then many believers think Jesus is the nice guy God is the mean one. Don't we often think, think about that? We think about the, uh, the Old Testament. We say, yeah, the Old Testament, man, God was mean. You know, God, God uh, called the children of Israel to, uh, to wipe out nations in the land of Canaan. And, and when, when the children of Israel, when they, um, when they disobeyed God and they did it in defiance, like building the golden calf, man, thousands of people died. Boy, that's mean. And we forget the fact that even the law was given not as a means of do, 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 but it was given in light of grace. It was given in light of God's mercy. What did God tell His people before He ever gave them His law? He says, I am the one that has bore you on eagle's wings. I've taken you out of captivity. I've gathered you to Myself. Now, as My special people, here is how you are to live. You see, God's working may have different aspects when we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, but, but God's grace is present. His mercy and love is present across every page of Scripture. In fact, when we see our view of God and we analyze what is our view of God 
How do verses like the following play out in your mind? Notice John 3.16 says, and you can memorize this, uh, you, you probably have, uh, it's on the overhead, uh, on the screen, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For who loved the world? God. Notice that you can't have this Jesus is the loving um, person in the Godhead and God the Father, He's the mean one. No, it says God the Father loved. And how did He show that love? He sent the Son. You're in 1 John. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Notice it says here, see what kind of love who has given to us? The Father. That we should be called the children of God, and so we are. It is the Father's love that has been manifested to us. Jump over to 1 John 4, 9-10. through Notice it says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the satisfaction, we'll talk about that term, for our sins. You see, folks, God is a loving God. He is a saving God. Psalm 68, 19 to 21, it'll be on the overhead for you. Notice it says this, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation, Selah. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of His enemies, the hairy crown of Him who walks in His guilty ways. Do you remember the verse we looked at when we we studied the doctrine of God? In Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7. Moses says, I want to see your glory. The people just greatly rebelled against you. You said you're not going to go with us. You're going to send your angel to go with us. But Moses says, God, we need you with us because if you are not with us, I I cannot have the confidence to lead these people. And God says, I will go with you. And Moses, in this rattled, uh, emotional state, says, God, would you show me your glory? In other words, would you increase my faith? Would you show me exactly who you are, who who you are and how I'm to lead these people? God says, my goodness will pass before you. And as his glory passes before Moses, God declares of himself that he is faithful, he's merciful, he is steadfast love, continues to generations. 
But then, just as this psalm points out, he also says, but I will in no wise leave the guilty. My justice is just as sure, in other words, of my mercy. And you see, we see the love of God in the fact that we are all condemned sinners. We are under the, the, the righteous justice of what our sins demand. But God says, I am a saving God and I will rescue my people. You see, we cannot make a dichotomy that Jesus is the one who is loving, but God the Father is the one who is mean. He's distant. He doesn't really care about us. How can we really know He is on our side? Because if God is for us, Romans 8 says, who can be against us? Amen? You see, not only do we have to note that redemption is sourced in God, but secondly, we have to note that redemption specifically occurs, is made possible through the work of the cross. Now again, for those of you that have been saved years and years, this is kind of a a no-brainer statement. But do we realize why this is important? Do we realize how many times people try to undercut the importance of the cross? Do we understand key ideas that relate to the cross? This is what our responsibility is as Christians. So I just want to discuss a few things with you this morning. A few terms with you. A few ideas. As we look at at our salvation being accomplished by means of Jesus on the cross, we have to understand a few things, a few terms. The first one is this big term, substitutionary atonement. How many of you have heard of that term before? You are familiar with the word substitution. In fact, if you're a teacher, you're out sick, what do you do? The school gets you a substitute. If you're on the soccer team or the basketball team, currently or back in the old days, or, or maybe you're younger and you hope to be, you get tired, what happens? A substitute comes in. Maybe as in some sports that I was in, you were never quite great enough to, to, to be on that first string, so you were the substitute. <laughs> no matter how much you didn't want to be, It is one coming and taking the place of another. What is atonement? Atonement is the idea of being made one. In fact, the very English word atonement, you can even break that down to get an idea of what the word means, at one meant. You're made to be at one, that there's there's a reconciling, there there is a bringing together, there is a peace that is established. So what this term is saying, that in order for us to be made at one with God, something had to happen. Someone had to be our substitute to take our place. Because listen, no matter how good you try to be, 
And this is true if you are, are, are here today and, 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 and you're, you'd say, I am not a Christian. Listen, no matter how good you try to be, you're never going to earn favor with God. And those of you who are Christians, no matter how good you try to be, that's not going to earn you any favor with God as a, as a, as a, as a, a Christian, a follower of Jesus. In fact, it's oftentimes that Jesus, that God lets us wear ourselves out to the point where we finally say, I need a substitute. I'll never forget on the soccer team in high school, um, I played goalie. And that was kind of my niche. Um, I, I, I played goalie. Um, before that, I played, I played fullback defense and um, wasn't real great at that. In fact, um, my coaches, who were two younger guys, they probably graduated from high school just a few years before they started coaching, and that was kind of a good thing and a not good thing, um, but they said later, they're like, we're glad goalie worked out for you, because those other positions weren't quite working out. <laughs> but, but before I found my niche at goalie, they put me in at halfback, and if you know anything about halfback... You're playing not just offense, but you're playing defense. You're all over the field. And I'm not a good endurance runner. And I wasn't used to the position. And I remember one game, and again, these guys were kind of jokester coaches, and they were still young, kind of on our level. Um, and that was fun sometimes, and then not fun with some of the hazing. Uh, but I remember getting tired and and start to not feel too good. I'm like, I need a sub, I need a sub. So they finally call one in because I was trying to get their attention for like 10 minutes and the ball doesn't stop, you know. And I'm walking off the court and just lose it right in front of them. What do they do? They just start laughing. (laughs) But listen, in the Christian race, the last thing we do many times is look to our substitute. And we say, you know, I can do it. I can go a little bit further. I can somehow make things work. I can. I. I just gotta. I just gotta kind of. Uh, I just gotta kind of endure in my own strength because I see light at the end of the tunnel. And guess what happens? That tunnel keeps getting longer and longer. And God, in His graciousness, who is the perfect. Not a good analogy, but the perfect coach, I guess you could say, for the sake of illustration. He will willingly let us see our need and say, you know what? I got to go back to my substitute. Just like for, for salvation, I have to realize that without him, I am helpless. Can't do it on my own. Those who've never come to Christ in in faith and repentance like we'll talk about. The Bible says that God is merciful. He is patient. In fact, it's the patience of the Lord, the Bible says, that leads men to repentance. And God lets individuals try it all out. Try to find their identity in something other than than who Jesus is and to, to, to try to be their own Savior until the point that they get to their end of their rope and they say, I have no other option but to look and call out for a true substitute. 
You see, usually in the sports realm, the substitutes that come in aren't as good as the originals, the starters. But listen, in God's story, the substitute is so much more perfect, is He not? And what a joy it is to be able to go to the sidelines, so to speak. And to not hope that the substitute does better, but to be able to look at the replays and know he already has. And as we then, we're not sitting on benches, the the, the analogy falls short, we are still active for the Lord, but man, we're doing it in light of Christ, not in light of ourselves. You know what? If I fail, to God be the glory. If he gives me and grants me success, to God be the glory. But I cannot let my identity be wrapped up in results. Whether it's parenting, whether it is, it is schooling, whether it is life, whether it is finances, whether it is do I get married, uh, do I not get married, uh, what are all these things? It is a life of following Jesus, not a life of seeking results. Let God bring the results into your life. There's going to be lots of them that you didn't think are good. There's going to be lots of them that you're praying for and hoping for and God grants. But it's always going to be a mixed bag. And that's where we have to trust. If God truly is our salvation, are we looking to our substitute every day of our life? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. There you see the idea of substitution, of transference. Jesus takes our place, and by doing that, He takes our sin And then, as Jesus pays the price for that sin, He provides atonement. He then gives us, in replace of our sin, His righteousness. In doing this, another key concept of our salvation occurring through the work of the cross is not only substitutionary atonement, but what happens in the midst of Jesus taking our place. In many religious circles today, the idea of God's holy wrath is not popular. In fact, many times in in, in hymns and songs of the Christian faith, you will hear of churches and, and, and denominations taking out the word wrath from songs because, well, how could a holy, good God that's loving have wrath? And they try to replace that with lesser things. But listen, the Bible teaches that sin is in complete opposition to God. Remember shooting the arrow not at at God's target and missing the mark? No, we go to a totally different target. Listen, sin is a holy offense to God. Because God is just, He cannot let sin just slide by. And there is a wrath. God's wrath is set out against sin. If you're, you're in 1 John, look at 1 John 4, verse 10. 
Again, we, we already looked at this. Let's look again. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation there in this sense in verse 10 has the idea of being the satisfaction, of being the one who has provided this atonement and he did it because God judged in his holy wrath. He judged Jesus instead of us. God's wrath was poured out on his own son. You see, no son or no sin was left. For God's people, no sin was left unatoned for. He, Jesus, bore all of it. In Romans 3.25, you don't, um, you're not there, um, and I don't remember if we have this one on the overhead, if we don't listen along. It says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. This word propitiation in Romans 3.25, it's similar to 1 John 4.10, just a little bit different. It's the very word that is used to refer back to the Old Testament, the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant where the blood was sprinkled in the, in the Old Testament t- tabernacle and temple. In other words, Jesus' own body was the place where divine justice was met and reconciliation between God and His people was established. But not like the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, every year sacrifice had to be made And every day sacrifices had to be made over and over. But for Jesus, it was once and only because he was the perfect sacrifice. And he appeased the wrath of a holy God against the sin of his people. And why should we be out evangelizing our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers because they are still under the wrath of God? Those sins that are not under the blood of Christ. But there's a third aspect of this redemption that was accomplished through the cross. And these are two more key terms that, that we as as Christians that want to to properly understand our faith and to properly understand what Jesus has done for us, not only for ourselves, but to share that with others, we have to understand these two things that come together, and it's called Jesus' active and passive obedience. You may say, what do you mean by Jesus' active and passive obedience? Both were required for Jesus to provide reconciliation between us and God. When we look at his active obedience, what we are talking about was that Jesus 
was actively obeying God in a perfect way, whereas we never could. For instance, Hebrews 2 verse 10 says this, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now you may say, what? What does that mean? Wasn't Jesus already perfect? Why would, would Jesus have to be made perfect through suffering? Was he not already perfect? And the answer is yes. In and of his very person was righteousness. It was perfection. But in order for Jesus to be a perfect sacrifice, a perfect substitute... He had to prove that he was the perfect substitute, the perfect sacrifice. And how did he do that? He did that through obeying all of God's righteous commands and standards. He did that through perfectly enduring hardship and suffering, whereas we never could. You see, before Jesus ever went to the cross... Our salvation was dependent upon his active obedience. And then you see the second aspect of this, his passive obedience. For instance, in some verses, such as Isaiah 53, 7, talks about the passive nature of Jesus' obedience, being willing to go to the cross and lay down his life for us. It says in Isaiah 53, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus tells his disciples, no man takes my life from me, but I willingly lay it down. You see, there was an active component to Jesus and being the perfect sacrifice, and there was a passive component. And both were required. And my goodness, how thankful we can be For the fact that Jesus was our perfect sacrifice. He was our perfect substitute. Listen, the next time you sin, I mean, the next time you even do an ignorant mistake, I've mentioned this before, the next time you, using your hand gestures, spill over your coffee, start thinking in a biblical way and, and let that rather than, oh, why did I do that? Which we all have react that way. After you, you, you do that, think, Lord, thank you for another reminder that I am not perfect. And you have been my perfect substitute. That, 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 that is what the Bible means when, when Paul says, let the word of God flow through you in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It, it's, it's taking the Scriptures, and letting them become a part of you. But I want to look at one final aspect, not just the source of our redemption, which is, which is Jesus through God and His love sending Him. But no presentation of the Gospel is complete without looking at our response. Listen, uh, the, the idea of lifestyle evangelism 
I mean, that has its proper place. The idea that you need to show Jesus' love, you need to show the character of Jesus before people will ever listen to you, that is 100% true. The problem is, is that many times we stop there. Well, hopefully they'll see the way I live and maybe know they're a Christian and therefore tie two and two together and maybe they'll come to Christ. But listen, where we fail as believers is saying, hey, being a witness is not complete until there's a call for response. Now don't get me wrong, circumstantially you may be in a position where you are simply called to be the lifestyle witness. But that work is not complete in their, in their heart, in their life, until they're called to respond to the message of the gospel. And the only way people can respond is through words, not just example. And as we look at this response to the gospel, we see first, first of all that there is a divine call. Now we make a call, we, tell, we share our faith, Lord willing, as God allows And that is a call to respond to the gospel. But even deeper than that, we are in reliance upon the Holy Spirit to truly call in the heart of a person. Time is short, so I can't can't, uh, go off on too many stories, but I'll never forget when I was in high school, um, our youth program was called Impact, and we had different... Uh, avenues of, of Christian service that we would part, take part of. Uh, mine was more of a soul-winning track. Um, so, so we would do the, the door-to-door and the talking on streets with people. And I got a lot of stories from that, but I can't... I'm really thinking of one right now, but it would, it would just be for the sake of entertainment. Um, <laughs> it involves running out the back door. <laughs> But, well, maybe that'll come up in a future illustration. And it was, uh, uh, yeah, I'm just going to stop there. But I'll never forget the, 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 an older mentor we had that mentored us with, lead, with, with, with sharing our faith. And this guy I really respect, and he was, he was a, a mentor of many sorts to me, but man, he got it wrong here. I'll never forget, he, he compared uh, sharing the gospel and providing a response to the gospel with, be, with his old days of being a, a door-to-door salesman. <laughs> and he said that it's always a turnoff to say, you know, do, uh, is this, do you want to look to Christ to be your Savior? That it's a much better closing to say, why don't we right now pray together? Do you see what's wrong with that? Number one, it's manipulation. Number two, it is it is. Uh, the idea that just by saying words, that's, that, that we can now brag about a decision that was made. Listen, unless there is a divine call, we can often try to, to, to uh, manufacture things for our own statistics or for our own bragging rights, but we've got to be in dependence upon this divine call. In Acts 16.31, uh, uh, Peter says, er, uh, uh, they say, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. 
Acts 8.35, Philip and, and the eunuch says, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. As we pronounce the gospel to people, we are in dependence upon God's divine call in their hearts to draw them to himself. But not only is there a divine call, there's a divine response. Many times the question arises, how do I know when someone has, has truly made a decision for Jesus or what's involved in a decision for Jesus? And the Bible tells us there's two elements to a proper response to the gospel, a saving response to the gospel. It is repentance and it is faith. Now, many times we like to hone in on faith, but repentance is also involved. Acts 20, verse 21, puts these two together. When Paul, he's about to leave the Ephesian elders, and he says, you know that I testified both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus. Do we have that verse for the overhead? Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Now, why would there be repentance toward God? Because we realize the offense of our sin is against a holy God, right? Why is there faith in Jesus? Because we must realize that He is the one and only substitute that God has provided for our sins. So let's just briefly talk about these two terms, repentance and faith. What is repentance? The word repentance has the idea of a turning about, a change of mind. I once thought this way about this thing, but now I think this way about this thing. And in the Bible, this change of mind, this turning about, always leads to a change in action. And that's really important. It's not just, yeah, I'm changing my viewpoint on this area, but it has no action in my life. No, that's not true repentance. That's a, a head knowledge. Biblical repentance is a change in your mindset, in your heart, that then leads to a change of action. You see, many times we skip the repentance part regarding salvation. But not so in the Scriptures. For instance, Acts 3.19 says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. 1 Thessalonians 1.9-10 gives a perfect example of what true repentance is. Paul writes about the Thessalonian Christians. Just listen, this isn't on the overhead. It says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turn to God from idols. Now how did that affect their actions? To serve the living true God. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So do you see the, the, what true repentance is? I see the truth, I respond to the truth, and then that produces in me a change in my action. 
That is repentance. It is not the fact that someone comes to Christ and says, okay, I'm going to do this better, I'm going to do that better, I'm going to do this better. No, it's saying, Lord, I acknowledge my sin and my need for You. And I want to give all of those things to You. And I want Your Word to be the authority of my life. And it's a dependence that God is then going to do His work in us as we give our life to Jesus. It is a heart attitude, and many times that heart attitude is missing. And many individuals that call themselves Christians in churches, in surveys, in this world, have a false conception that their salvation is legitimate when in reality it is based upon mental, a, a mental assertion of facts that has never reached the heart. Then there's this second aspect of faith. Faith is a full dependence and reliance upon something. You've heard the illustration, you're to sit in a chair and you, you sit there and you're very confident that chair is going to hold you up. I mean, your entire weight is in that chair. How many of you like to fly? When you're in an airplane, isn't it funny? Uh, how much of your dependence is in that airplane when you're 30,000 feet above the ground? Isn't it funny to see people that are scared of flying and they're like clutching the seat like somehow they're keeping themselves safe? <laughs> Listen, when you're in that airplane, you are completely dependent on Jesus. Which, by the way, footnote, that's a perfect illustration of the Christian life. You're active in that airplane, aren't you? You're doing stuff. I mean, granted, you've got to stay in your seats when the seatbelt light's on. But you're active. That's our Christian life, folks. We are actively serving him, but the whole time we're in complete reliance upon that airplane. But I mean, that's the faith is, uh, man, if this thing goes down, then I'm going down with it. I'm, I, all of my eggs, this is the one time where all your eggs, it's good to be in one basket. In fact, it's the only option. And Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And listen, here's how repentance and faith go together. Because they're not two different things. It's like having one coin, and it's having heads and tails. They're two sides of the same coin. You may say, what does it mean if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord? You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Why, why are they talking about mouth and heart? Well, first of all, the, the word heart in the Bible always refers to your inner being, not, not just your emotions like we think of today or a certain part of your life. No, it's, it's talking about your whole inner being. So it talks about this confession with the mouth that Jesus is Lord and belief in the heart that God raised him from the dead. You're basically talking about two parallel ideas that express themselves through the life. 
You see, especially back in the culture of when, when the book of Romans was written, you would not confess Jesus as Lord with your mouth, with your heart, in other words, with your life, unless it was legitimate. Many times it's popular to call yourself a Christian today. But not so, and we are seeing increasingly where if we're going to hold true to the Scriptures, it become, it's becoming increasingly less popular and cultural and something to not be ashamed of. You see, it requires a total response of your person, your inner being. As God reveals that truth to you, to see yourself in your sins. To see that without Christ you are hopeless. To see all of these things that you are seeking after that are the contrary target of God's righteous standard. To stop rationalizing what is called sin clearly from God's word and to say, no, it's not really. I'm pretty good. It's not that bad. And to say, I see my condition. I see the substitute. I want to give over to God my sinful condition. I want to give over to God even those sins that I don't feel I can let go of. And I want to look to a new substitute, one that's truly better than me. And I want to place it all upon this substitute, all of my sin, all of my desire, all of my life. I want what he offers me a restored relationship with God, His righteousness, and God's divine favor. And as that transfer is made, the Bible says we receive the Holy Spirit, that new life is given, and that through God working in our hearts, not through something we self-manufacture, but as Romans 6.4 says, that God does a work in our heart and the last phrase of that verse says that we too might walk in newness of life. 